You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, well, I've got five pages of notes, and I can usually speak for an hour off a 3 by 5 index card, so that tells me we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's begin with prayer, and we'll jump right into what we have for this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us the Spirit of God by which you give to us not only truth, but enlightenment and illumination and discernment. And we pray that today you would open our eyes and our hearts to be discerning Christians to be able to discern between truth and error, and to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you, that we might hold to those things which are true and test everything in light of your word. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. And turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 1. I could have selected any one of 20 passages that instantly came to my mind to begin this time this morning, but I chose Titus, chapter 1. We could have done 2 Timothy, chapter 3, or Philippians, chapter 3, or 1 Timothy, chapter 4, the book of Jude, the book of Second Peter, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9 gives the qualifications for an elder. And I just want you to focus on the, the one that is in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Look at verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being, what? look at this, detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that about another human being? This is the same guy who later on would say, speak evil of no man. But when it comes to false teachers and people who assault the faith and compromise the faith, Paul says they're disobedient. They are detestable and they are worthless for nothing. They're worthless for any good deed. And uh, I want to be as as um, gracious, as um, generous as I possibly can in evaluating the emergent church movement. And I think that I can do so with objectivity, but you're going to see as we get into this that there are places where they begin to attack the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And when that starts to happen, then all of my graciousness and my generosity and all of that goes right out the window. I don't have any patience for that. And I start to get my blood pressure goes up. My face gets red. I get very tense. I get very anxious. And my stomach starts to churn when I see things like that happen. So let me, we're going to discuss the emergent church because Dorothy asked last week, could we go over what the emergent church is? And it is my prediction, and I don't have a problem going on record with this, but it's my prediction with, within five years at the outside, you're going to have at least one, possibly more than one emergent church in the standpoint area. We already have some churches that are beginning to do emergent, quote-unquote, emergent church things right here in this area. And I'm going to get back to that and to get to the end of it. 
And what I need to do today is I want to just give you an overview of what the emergent church is, because if you haven't heard of the emergent church, you're going to hear from hear about it sometime soon. Um, Christianity Astray, also known as Christianity Today, where almost anything that is uh, a danger to the church first gets its coverage. Christianity Today has done a lot of articles on the emergent church, all favorable. Leadership Journal has done a lot of articles on the emergent church, all of them favorable. It seems as if the entire quote-unquote evangelical movement is heading towards this emergent um, church direction. And so it's, it's not going to be long before we start seeing it crop up. Um, it won't be in this congregation, but it will be in this town, I'm sure. I have to give you one disclaimer at the beginning, or actually a couple of them. First of all, what I'm going to be saying is very general. I'm going to be speaking general terms, giving general examples and general ideas. You can't be too specific with the emergent church, because the minute you start getting into specifics, you'll have some emergent leader jump up and say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't describe me. Because it's so broad, it's so variegated, it's so multicolored that you just cannot, you can't pin it down and say, this is it, this is the box. Because there'll be somebody who shares parts of that, but not all of it. Some people who share all of it. There are emergent church leaders who would say, yeah, everything you described this morning was me. There are others who say, yeah, I'm emergent, but I'm not quite that emergent. I, I kind of take this piece of the pie and not all of it. And so that'll be their approach. So rather than having everything that I say die the death of a thousand qualifications, I want you to understand at the outset that I am speaking in very general terms. We can't go into the specific theological issues because we don't have the time. Because what I want to do is I want to give you about 30 minutes of talking. I want to open it up for about 15 minutes of questions at the end in case you have any. And then I want you also to know that I haven't spent any time with the quote-unquote source documents of the emergent church. In other words, I haven't read Brian Kimball. I haven't read... uh, Dan Kimball or Bryant, Lar- Bryant McLaren. I haven't read Doug Padgett. I haven't read these guys. I listened this last week to five hours of lectures on the Emergent Church series. I've read this last week. This was on my shelf, my reading shelf of books to read this year. And so after Dorothy's question last Sunday, I picked this up Sunday after church and took it home. I plowed through this thing this last week, which was thick reading, Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church by D.A. Carson, probably the most even-handed scholarly, well-done evaluation of the emergent church that I think I've ever read or seen in print. This is a good book. It's not something you're going to read over your cornflakes while you're watching the evening news. It's not light. It is deep. It is thick. But it's well worth it because it's a good evaluation of the emergent church movement. I don't believe that you and I have to become uh, enamored with original source writings to evaluate something because there's nothing in the emergent church that's new. It's the same liberal theology. It's the same postmodern approach to truth that has been plaguing us for 30 years. All that is new is the Christianity's wholesale embrace of moral and theological relativism. That's what's new. Nothing else is new. So I don't have to become conversant with their books and evaluate their books because I know what the philosophy of it is and we can evaluate the philosophy. And all we have to do, according to Titus chapter 1, is hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. And then we are able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. There are times as... As a shepherd of the church where we have to exhort in sound doctrine, we do that through the exposition of Scripture in Sunday school on Sunday mornings where we're teaching the Word that's exhorting in sound doctrine. But there are times when, as shepherds, as elders, our responsibility is to throw up the red flag and say, hey, look, here is, there's, there's somebody amongst us who's wearing sheep's clothing and you need to look out for him. Or there's somebody out there who's hiding behind the bush waiting to ravage the flock and you need to know what he looks like. And that's what we're doing here this morning. Okay, what is the emergent church and what is the term emergent mean? You can use the term in a few different ways. Do you know what the term emerge means? Something emerges, it kind of comes out of something else, right? That's, that's the idea behind the term, the label, emergent church. 
the philosophy of the emergent church says that there is, amongst our modern-day evangelicalism, a church that is emerging. That is, the church that is coming up and coming out of our traditional, even seeker-sensitive, uh, average churches on the landscape. They're kind of coming to the forefront. Here in our church, we have a church that is emerging. We have young high school students who are coming out of high school, coming out of junior high, getting ready to go into college, getting ready to graduate and become adults and get married and all that. We have a church amongst us that is emerging. So the emergent church movement, and they don't like the term movement, by the way. They prefer the term conversation. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. The emergent church movement, their philosophy is we have to change what we believe. We have to change how we practice what we believe. We have to change what we practice and how we do church in order to reach or become relevant to the emerging church. And so they are the emergent church. Every generation has had an emerging church. You understand that? The, the generation of the 60s and 70s, the kids then, they were reacting to the traditionalism of, the, of their parents in the 50s. They got into the Jesus movement. And then that Jesus movement kind of morphed and people began to get away from the sort of hippie and the Jesus out on the hillside um, type of movement. They sort of emerged out of that and we got the seeker-sensitive movement, which was sort of the next step, but a reaction of sorts to the Jesus movement. And then out of the seeker-sensitive movement, now we have a generation of kids... 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who are reacting to the faith or the church style of their parents, and they're coming out of it and they say, we don't like that. And so there's a lot of protests and a lot of reaction against what we would call today traditional churches like ours, where they say, that's not for us, we don't want that, we're the emerging church. So now there's cropped up a whole philosophy of church movement, a whole philosophy of church growth that is called the emerging church movement. Any questions about that so far? Quick, before we move on. Okay, good. Page one. Oh, no, i got more at the bottom of page one. Um, one thing you need to understand, this is not an issue of style. It's not an issue of whether you have drums on stage. It's not an issue of whether it's hymns versus choruses. It's not candles versus no candles or couches versus pews or small groups versus large groups. Or It's, it's, not, a, it's not style at all. This is a philosophy. This is a theology. This is an approach to biblical doctrine. This is a view of Scripture, a view of God, and a view of the church that is absolutely, in my opinion, and I think it's an informed biblical opinion, heretical. So it's not an issue of style. It's not just, well, we have couches instead of pews. Well, the fact that you have couches instead of pews is a symptom of uh, something that's wrong up here in the gears, and you're going to see in a minute what is wrong up here in the gears. Let me give you some of the players, some of the people that, uh, and raise your hand if you've heard any of these names. Brian McLaren, some of you maybe have read some of his books. Steve Chalk. Brian McLaren is the leader of the Emerging Church Movement on this side of the Atlantic. Steve Chalk is the emerg- leader of the Emerging Church Movement over in England. Doug Paget, Dan Kimball, Leonard Sweet. That might be one that more people have heard of. Mike Iaconelli with Youth Specialties. Chuck Smith, Jr. Ah, Chuck Smith. That's Chuck Smith, Sr.'s son, in case you couldn't tell from the junior. Chuck Smith was the one that started the uh, Calvary Chapel Movement. His son has since basically apostatized to the point where Calvary Chapel put him out. It just happened within the last 12 months. They had a meeting, and Calvary Chapel's denomination had to exercise church discipline and put out Chuck Smith Jr. because he has jumped on to the emergent church movement and has gone so far in outside of the pale in the emergent church movement that Calvary Chapel finally said, enough is enough, and they disfellowshipped Chuck Smith Jr. and his church. The philosophy of the post of uh, the emergent church movement. Let me just give you three quick terms and an overview of them. Number one, they're, they're basically the, the 
the view of knowledge that human beings have had has gone through three phases. First, there was what was called pre-modern. That was pre-17th century or pre-enlightenment, where everybody said, God is the source of revelation. God is the source of all knowledge. And anything that we know, we only know because he knew it first. So through revelation, we can come to an understanding of absolute truth. And then in the 1700s with the Enlightenment, the source of truth switched from God and his revelation, be it natural revelation or general rev- or special revelation, the source of knowledge switched from God to I. And Rene Descartes came out and said, I think, therefore I am, right? I can know that I exist because I think. So I become the ground by which I can know truth. And so it became <clears throat> very rationalistic, very humanistic, very man-centered, very me-centered and I-centered. The next step was what was called postmodernism. So you had pre-modernism, modernism, and in modernism, people believed you could actually know moral truth, theological truth, scientific truth, truth about life, that true things were really true, and that we could determine those things through our rational thought processes and deductive reasoning and logic and things like that. Then along comes postmodernism and says, I am still the ground of truth, and I am still able to come to a knowledge as far as it goes, but we cannot actually really certainly absolutely know truth because anything that we discern, anything that we think, anything that we believe is clouded by our culture. It's clouded by our language. It's clouded by our upbringing. And so since we are so subjective, we can only know things subjectively and we can't know that anything is objectively true. So then you get moral relativism, which says what's true for you is not necessarily true for me and what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. Jesus works for me, but he may not work for you. That's moral relativism. You have cultural relativism, which says, who are we to condemn the, the um, actions of Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis? If that's what they want to do in their culture, that's right. That's right for them. Well, do you see how everything becomes subjective and relative? That's postmodernism. Now, the emergent church movement is a postmodern movement, but they will not admit that they are postmodern. But they use postmodern terms. They adopt postmodern philosophy. They come to postmodern conclusions. But they don't like the term postmodernist. They won't bring that label on themselves. And in a second, you'll see how frustrating that becomes. For the postmodernists, um, or for the emergent church movement, their big catchwords are words like narrative, story. Brian McLaren wrote a book called The Story We Find Ourselves In. And it's that Jesus is our narrative. That's our little life story. And he works in our little life story. But the Buddhist, the Hindu, the moral relativist, the New Ager, the Mormon, the uh, Muslim, all of them have their own little quote-unquote narrative, their own little story in which they find themselves, and they have their own little truths and their own little stories, and we have our own little truths and our own little stories, and it might work for us, but it's not going to work for them, and what works for them doesn't work for us. You see the moral relativism there? It's narrative, it's story, it's conversation. We want dialogue. They don't have preaching in the emergent church. They have dialogue. Because preaching, or what Doug Padgett calls speeching, is offensive. It's out of date. It's out of out of, uh, it's, it's not relevant to people anymore. People don't want to listen to preaching or expository preaching. And he actually uses the term that, or the concept that you guys need to be protected from people like me because expository preaching and teaching of scripture is a dangerous thing in the church today because it is really harming the, the flock. I'm sorry if I'm harming all of you on Sunday mornings. The emergent church movement is a movement of protest. There's certain things that they protest. They protest certainty. We can't be absolutely certain about anything. They protest any kind of absolutism. We can't be absolutely certain about anything. They, um, they protest objective doctrinal truth. 
You may think that you understand who Jesus is, but that's clouded by your culture. It's clouded by your language. It's clouded by your upbringing and your behavior and your background and who you are. It's very subjective. You can't absolutely objectively know Jesus for sure. They're objecting against any kind of objective doctrinal truth. You may think you understand it, but you don't. Because none of us has a complete picture of the whole. All we have is our own little unique perspective. Third, they are, re- they are protesting against the seeker-friendly megachurch movement, the Rick Warren, Bill Hybel style. Uh, somebody, ha- a lot of people have asked me this question. Is it just the next step of the mega, is this part of the seeker-sensitive movement? And the answer is yes and no. You have people in the seeker-sensitive movement who are grabbing onto some emergent concepts to sort of morph their churches a little bit. But the emergent church movement as a whole is a rejection of the big commercialized, um, Big mega church movement. What they want is the touchy feely stuff. And and one of them in a book uh, that was I think edited by Leonard Sweet or Mike Iaconelli. I'm not sure which one of them. In a book they talk about how the one guy went from being a traditional conservative Christian to being an emergent Christian when he realized that he didn't have a parking he didn't have the spiritual gift of parking lot ministry. And his ministry was going out into the parking lot, his massive parking lot, and shuttling cars and finding places to park and ushering people in the door. That was his ministry. And he said, I don't have the parking lot ministry spiritual gift and that and so he he rejected that and sort of went to the other extreme and so we need to get away from all the big mega church movements do you you see how it's born in protest this is that my parents generation and i don't have that we think that's wrong so we want couches and small groups and candles and liturgies and prayer stations and all of that good stuff let's see if i hadn't yeah let me go ahead Dialogue. They share their story. If you look for a, if you look, the question was, if they don't teach like I do, what do they do? If, if you look for a, if, if you're an emergent church and you want to find a, a pastor, because you need a pastor for your church, you don't, what you advertise for, what you're seeking is a lead pastor. There's no authority with them. They don't have any authority over anybody else. There's no ruling, there's no shepherding or oversight, anything like that. But they sort of do, it's a dialogue format. We, we all sit around, and they would fill this place with couches and armchairs and all of that stuff. But we all sit around, we drink coffee, and we'd have candles burning. And, and back in the corner, you'd have a, a prayer station. And over in this corner, you'd have a journal station. And as I'm up here dialoguing with you, what do you think? How do you feel? What do you feel about this? And what do you think about that? And, and all of this, and Scripture's out of the thing. And it's all, we're just discussing and dialoguing. I'm telling my story about Jesus. You're telling your story about Jesus. And in the middle of it, three people get up, and they go back to the journal station. They write down some neat thoughts in the journal. And then they walk over, and they grab a cup of coffee, and they go back to the prayer station. They have prayer labyrinths where they walk through these mazes, and there are prayer stations at different points in the maze where they stop and they pray for some, something. Um, a lot of liturgy. A lot of touchy-feely stuff. So it's, it's not teaching, doctrine, reproving, correcting, instructing, and righteousness. It's none of that. It's a dialogue. We want conversation. We want dialogue to discover truth. Because truth cannot be fully known. Which sort of begs the question, why then try and discover it through dialogue? If it can't be known, let's just throw the whole thing out altogether. Thomas. What do I mean by the word liturgy? Um, I'm referring to, that's a good question, because all of us would define liturgy differently. By liturgy, I'm referring to um, a lot of the, they want sights, they want sounds, they want feelings, they want the things, and, and that's what you have in liturgy. You have the ringing of the bells and the smoke and the incense and the candles 
You have all of these things that create this spiritual, quote-unquote, atmosphere. That's what they want. They don't want to walk into a commercial complex and walk into a sanctuary and see the entertainment up on the screen and the movie clips and then some guy getting up and talking. They think that that's exposition, by the way. That's how most submersion church would define a preaching. Is you play a little movie clip and then you get a little life lesson off the movie clip and that's preaching. Well, of course, I'm opposed to that too, but I don't think that the extreme is dialogue. So by liturgy, I'm, refer- I'm glad you asked me to clarify that. More of the touchy-feely sights and sounds type of environment creating the... the Mysticism, as if we're going back to the dark ages of the church kind of idea. Okay, let me move on to the last thing that they protest, and that's they reject authority, no elder rule, no spiritual authority. Anything traditional, orthodox, or certain is out the door. Now, I need to be generous because I think that the emergent church movement, or the leaders of the emergent church movement, I don't think that their motives are in any way um, malicious. I think that the desire on behalf of most of them really is genuinely to reach the next generation. The church that's coming up amongst us. We live in a postmodern culture, and I think that their heart's desire, and I I give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that they're wrong, horribly wrong, but I think that their heart's desire really is genuinely to reach the next generation. I don't think that their desire is to abolish absolute truth or to attack Scripture or to attack Jesus or any of that. I think that their motives are pure. They're genuine. But there's a difference between contextualizing the gospel, which is what they're attempting to do. And they're, they're saying, our culture is this, so we need to take the gospel and find a way to, to hit the culture with it so that it can have an impact in the culture. Well, I think that there's a difference between contextualizing the gospel and culturalizing the gospel. And I think I probably just coined a new word there, culturalizing the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Mars Hill on Athens, did he culturalize the gospel? Did he deny absolute truth or did he contextualize it? He spoke to the Athenian philosophers. He quoted their, pro- their poets, their Epicurean philosophers. He quoted the Stoics. He quoted the Epicureans. He took the truth of the gospel and he put it in terms and in a way that they could understand. But he talked about God being self-sustaining. He talked about God being the creator of all things. He talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the judgment to come. All the elements of the gospel were right there as Paul was contextualizing it, saying it in terms that these philosophers would understand. But he didn't culturalize the gospel and say, well, they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a creator God. They don't believe in a self-sustaining God who upholds all things by the word of his power. So I'm not going to mention those things. He didn't do that. He took those things and he contextualized it so that the culture could say, oh, yeah, those are in language that we can appreciate. They're trying to contextualize the gospel, I think. Motives appear. But they end up instead culturalizing the gospel, making the gospel postmodern and denying absolute truth in the process rather than confronting the gospel with the absolute truth in terms that the culture can understand. Let me give you some of the problems with the emergent church movement. And I don't even know where to start with this. I've got six of them that I've labeled here. First of all, there is a, there is a tremendous doctrinal confusion amongst er, er, uh, emergent church leaders. This is because they don't believe that, that anything can be known for certain. So they adopt what is called the, hermen, the hermeneutics. Anybody know what the term hermen? <laughs> Does anybody know how to say hermeneutic? Does everybody know what the term hermeneutics means? Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. You take the text and you say, what does this mean? What did it mean to the original receivers of this text? That's hermeneutics, coming up with the meaning, the intended meaning of the text. They adopt what's called the hermeneutics of humility. I can't possibly know for sure what that text means. And neither can you. 
And who am I? Who am I to say that this is what that text means? See that? It sounds real humble. It sounds real self-effacing. It sounds real gracious and real generous. But what does it do to the truth? It destroys it. Right? As Christians, do we believe that objective truth can be known? We believe that objective truth can be known. Not only do we believe that objective truth can be known, but we believe that objective truth has been given to us and that God expects us to know and obey objective truth. Well, they adopt the hermeneutics of humility. It's just, who am I to say that that's what that text means? So you end up with all this doctrinal confusion, and, of course, they have this anti-certainty position. They can't be certain about anything. Um, this comes out in all kinds of areas of theology, and just let me give you a few, a few examples of this. I can't go into any one of these in any kind of detail, but as far as hell goes, they're afraid to say for certain that the lost are damned to hell and that they'll spend eternity in hell, or that anybody's eternal dam- damnation or eternal salvation can be guaranteed or known for sure. Uh, many of them, if you ask them about hell, they won't even answer the question because they don't want to speak on a subject like that in fear of offending somebody or in fear of saying something that maybe not, might not be true because we don't know for certain from Scripture whether hell even exists and what Jesus meant by the words hell and punishment and things like that. Salvation, Jesus is just our story. Other cultures have different stories. The gospel becomes a social gospel where we feel it, we, we live it, we do all of these nice things, we are very sentimental, we're very emotional, and all that becomes the gospel. The gospel is not... The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in Him alone. That's our gospel. That's not their gospel. They can't know any of those things for certain. Jesus becomes simply the man we experience in our narrative. They deny total depravity and the inability of man. And some of them even say that man was born inherently good and can please God and can turn to Christ and can believe the gospel. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the clarity of Scripture. All of those things they deny. It's not inerrant and it's not authoritative because you can't know it for sure. And it's not clear. So if you ask them, what about homosexuality? One of them even suggested, I think it was Brian McLaren in an interview uh, with either um, Leadership Journal, I'm not sure which, or uh, Christianity Astray. One of those magazines, when they interviewed Brian McLaren, he said, I think we should have a five-year moratorium on talking about homosexuality until we find out what the Bible actually says about it. We shouldn't even discuss it for five years. So they don't want to discuss things like this. Right, why? You might offend homosexuals. And we can't even be sure that what was condemned in the Scriptures is what is practiced today. It might be two two totally different things. We need to find that out for sure. But we can't know that for sure. So, Satan is not a person. He is a very real metaphor for a very real evil. Not a person. A very real metaphor for something that is very evil that exists in our world. The sovereignty of God. They don't believe that God controls all things. As far as gender roles and women's functions in the church and in the home and in society and culture and the world at large, all that stuff is up for grabs because Scripture doesn't say anything for certain about those issues. And the atonement, and this is probably the thing that gets my blood boiling the most, as far as the atonement goes, they will honestly say, and some of them have come out and said this, that the idea that God the Father punished His Son on the cross in our place in a penal substitutionary atonement is the equivalent of cosmic or divine child abuse. That God would do that to His Son is child abuse. And so we cannot... We cannot believe in a substitutionary atonement where one man was punished for another man because that's child abuse. Divine child abuse. That, now, not every, and again, I'm speaking in general terms, not every emergent church leader and emergent church pastor would go so far as to say that. But it is being said by some. And you know why? Because the floodgates are open when moral relativism has been embraced. Nothing is certain, nothing is true, and all you have done is open the Pandora's box of every kind of doctrinal and heretical error that you can possibly conceive of. 
It is on, it's on the horizon and it's being discussed, these things. There's an exegetical ineptness. And, and keep in mind, I'm not talking about every single emergent church leader. Okay? I need to make that clarification so that some of you say, oh, I know an emergent church pastor and you're not describing him. You're right, I'm probably not. I'm describing the movement, the parameters of this movement as they are today and what's going on within the movement proper. There is an exegetical ineptness. In other words, you give them a passage of scriptures and you say, exegete the passage. Tell me what that passage means. Do the grammatical historical study in the passage. Tell me what that author is saying to that audience. You can't do that. There's no theologians amongst the movement. None conservative, all liberal theologians who deny absolute truth. These are the people that they quote. But there is an inability and to discern doctrine, to discern truth, to do the hard work in the text of scripture and to come to an absolute meaning on what the text says. They proof text the Bible in horrible ways, quoting the Bible out of context that is just it staggers the mind to read some of the things that I've read, where they quote a passage of Scripture, and then they'll talk about something and quote this passage to back it up. And I, I know just from not even have to turn to the passage and read the verse in its context that they're misquoting the passage. This happens all the time within the movement. They're undiscerning. They can't spot the difference between truth and error. They can't call out error. They won't confront heresy. And why won't they? Who's to say that you're right or I'm right and you're wrong, right? How do I know that? Nothing can be known for certain. Nothing's absolute. How can I say that this guy's wrong? There is obfuscation. You know what obfuscation means? It's a confusing, confusing of the facts and a confusing of categories and it's kind of a mixing of things up. They, they do this. They obfuscate the facts and categories all the time. Let me give you some examples. They will teach postmodernism with a postmodern approach while denying to be a postmodernist. Are you a postmodernist? No, 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 no. Do you believe in absolute truth? Nope. Believe more relativism? Well, no, but they would teach more relativism because that's the logic of their conclusion. So there's this blurring and this blending of categories. They'll teach liberal theology, which has hounded the church for 2,000 years, but they call it something new. There's nothing new about it. It's the same liberal theology that has been around for 2,000 years, denying all these fundamental doctrines of the faith. They're apparently willing, and sometimes I think it, it almost has to be an intentional Blurring of the lines and misusing of labels. For instance, Brian McLaren's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, in which he shows that he's anything but orthodox. A Generous Orthodoxy, the subtitle is this. Now catch this. This is the subtitle. A Generous Orthodoxy, Why I Am a Missional, Evangelical, Post-Protestant, Liberal-slash-Conservative, Mystical-slash-Poetic, Biblical, Charismatic, Contemplative, Fundamentalist-Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, Incarnational, Depressed Yet Hopeful, Emergent, Unfinished Christian. Now, how can you be all of that at the same time? He should have just said, why I am a mixed up person who says I'm a Christian. But let me tell you how, they, how he defines fundamentalist. You say, is he a fundamentalist? He would argue he's a fundamentalist, but he would say, look, the fundamentals of the faith are that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the fundamentals of faith. I believe that. I'm a fundamentalist. Now, you and I know, if you've been around long enough, what a fundamentalist is. A fundamentalist who holds to the orthodox doctrines of the historic Christian faith against the liberal tendency. And the whole idea of fundamentalist came out of the fundamentals of the faith written by and edited by R.A. Torrey in the early 1900s as a response to liberalism. But you take the word fundamentalist, you strip it of all its theological meaning, all of its historical context, all of its meaning that people have used it for the last 80 years, and instead you say, well, the fundamentals of the faith are to love God and love your neighbor. I love those that are from a fundamentalist. He'd also say he's a Calvinist. What does he mean by Calvinist? Well, he says, I have an acronym. I have a TULIP. I believe in T-U-L-I-P, like a five-point Calvinist would. And here's what I believe. The T stands for triune love. 
The U stands for unselfish election. The L stands for limitless reconciliation. The I is inspiring grace. And the P is passionate and persistent states. Therefore, since I have a tulip, a T-U-L-I-P, I am therefore a Calvinist. So he can call himself a Calvinist. This has to be intentional. This type of blurring of the lines and confusing of terms and stripping words of its meanings and, re- and reinventing a word and then applying it to yourself and saying, there I, for, I therefore am one of these. That has to be intentional. You cannot do that on accident. You have to be willingly do that, whether he understands the consequences of what he's doing or not. It's not like you say, oh, well, I'm a Calvinist, and I believe this, this, and this, and you say, well, you know, you're about 90% right. That's what a Calvinist would say. And It's not that at all. He, he dumps the whole load, redefines the word, and says, that's me. That's why you can have that big, long subtitle to his book. They're, sect- they're plagued by sectarianism, which is that they, they decry sectarianisms, sectarianists, you know a sectarianist? Somebody who says, we got our little club and if you don't belong to us, you're not right. You're wrong. They decry a sectarianist, these people who, who uh, promote sex within Christianity, while themselves saying, what? You need to belong to us, right? We're the emergent conversation. We're the ones for the future of the church. So while denying and decrying sectarians, they become very sectarianists. Um, in fact, this is interesting, and this is one thing I've noticed that's kind of disturbing. The only people that an emergent church leader is willing to go to war against are people like you and I, who actually believe in the fundamental doctrines of faith, the Orthodox Christian faith. Any conservative, traditionalist, Orthodox Christian, they'll go to war with. But they won't go to war with, doctrinally, a Muslim or a Buddhist. In fact, they advocate Buddhist principles of meditation. They won't go to war with New Agers or liberal theologians or people who deny the faith or atheists or evolutionists or agnostics or anything like that. The ones they want to go to war with are the people who actually believe that absolute truth can be known. So they're very sectarianistic. While, de- while decrying sects, they have created their own. And in- inevitably, they are going to become a sect within Christianity while decrying sectarianism. So they're very sectarianist. And the sixth problem is they have this inability to see the glaring contradictions within their own movement. They're absolutely certain that we cannot be absolutely certain about anything. Right? They affirm that nothing can be affirmed. They believe it's true that truth cannot be known. Is everybody catching on to this? This is so glaringly, this is so glaringly inept that I don't even see how you can be a postmodernist. They, they're certain that nothing is certain. They are against those who are against something. They don't tolerate those who are intolerant, like us. But this is the confused mindset. This is the confused lifestyle of somebody who adopts postmodern thinking. Where nothing can be certain, nothing can be absolute, nothing can be true. G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy in 1957 and writes this. What we suffer from today, and this is, this is incredible. 1957, listen to this. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. In other words, people today are modest about their convictions, right? This is what I believe. But I don't want to force that on anybody else because I might be wrong. It's moved from the organ of ambition, settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And this has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. End quote. That's the truth. That's what we're producing. People too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Absolute truth. So my conclusion is, and I'm being as generous and gracious as I can, Brian McLaren is a theological liberal. 
He has masked it. He has redefined it. He has kept himself under the radar. He doesn't use the terms that typically identify theological liberals, but he is. Every position on every major doctrine of the faith is theologically liberal. I can be generous and I can be gracious until the faith is at stake, but as I said earlier, then I start to run out of grace and generosity to deal with this type of stuff. And this is very close to home. There's a local church here in this area that has a prayer labyrinth. Do you know that? Within walking distance of this building. You can go there and you can go through the prayer labyrinth and hit the little prayer stations. It won't be long before this stuff is full-blown all over the Sandpoint area because we are, if we're not on the cutting edge of something, we're just right behind the cutting edge of all kinds of wacky stuff. You know that if you've lived here long enough. This last week, and I got permission to share this story. And boy, I'm running out of time in a hurry. <clears throat> last week, I went down and I visited a friend of this congregation whose family used to attend here. He teaches at a school in Coeur d'Alene. I'm not going to use his name because if you've been here a while, you know who I'm talking about. And uh, this, this goes out on the Internet, so I want to be very careful with how I say what I say. Uh, he got an email from the principal of his school saying that from this point forward, nobody was going to talk about the emerging church movement. They weren't going to discuss it. They're going to be quiet and neutral on the subject because it's creating so much controversy. So he emailed the principal back and said, wait a second, if I understand this right, he did some research, he came to the police, if I understand this right, this is a heretical movement, why are we going to be neutral about this? Why are we going to be quiet about this? And then I showed up at his house to visit with him for a little bit, and he came in and he asked me to come in and asked me what I thought of the emergent church movement, if I'd heard of it, I said I had, and I described what it was, and he said, well, you basically confirmed what I thought all along about this, and so this last week I emailed him and asked him if I could use his story, and he writes back, he says this, you can sure use my story. Here's the written response to my principal when I posted the question about remaining neutral. Quote, there is much turmoil in the church over this issue. Church splits, much heartache, much confusion. Pastors and elders across the nation are trying to sort things out. Now is not the time for the church to overreact, but to discern and act. I think we should allow some time for the churches of America and the world, the pastors and elders of America, to wrestle through this phenomenon. As a non-denominational school, we need to give the denominations time to settle the issues. And then he asked me, he also wrote that the school board would be discussing it at their next meeting. Well, in my mind, there's nothing to wait for. It's heresy and needs to be addressed. What do you think? And I'm always glad when somebody asks me what I think, and this is what I responded. This is not a new phenomenon. Postmodernism, pluralism, and moral relativism are not new. And this is to, to sum up and conclude how I feel about this. What is new is evangelical Christians wanting to embrace these truth-denying philosophies wholesale. There's nothing to settle. The issues have been settled once and for all, Jude 3. When the faith was once for all delivered to the saints, the issue was settled. Anything that attacks or undermines that faith should not only be opposed, but should be confronted and contended with. Would he issue the same response concerning the current debate over same-sex marriage? After all, we need time to sort through the issues and wrestle with this phenomenon. We need to let the denominations settle the issue. Let the Presbyterians, Methodists, and Anglican pastors come to some sort of conclusion before we speak to it. Would he offer the same response concerning evolution, intelligent design, and creationism? Do we need time to wrestle with the atheistic-theistic debate? Maybe we should not take a stance on Islam since we would split over the church over such issues. After all, it has caused much heartache, confusion, and turmoil in the church. There is much turmoil in the church over this issue precisely because people are remiss to deal with error and confront heresy when it rears its ugly head. Giving this movement time to do its damage before it is spoken against only serves to make the situation worse rather than better. When the wolf enters the fold, it does not do the flock any good for the shepherds to remain silent so that they can wrestle with the phenomena. It only allows the wolf to ravage the flock and create horrible shipwreck of souls. The issue with the emergent church is not whether to have candles and journal stations in the worship service, but whether Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the Bible the only revealed Word of God, and the cross the only payment for sin. It is about whether there is a hell, an objective morality, or an objective noble truth about God. What is at stake is the atonement, the Great Commission, and the next generation of the Christian church. 
Men are arising, speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples after themselves. They are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God who oppose the truth, being depraved in mind and rejected regarding the faith. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Professing to know God, they deny Him by their deeds. If this issue is not appropriate to create division over, then no issue is worthy of dividing over. We might as well abandon the entire faith, pack it all up, hand it over to the devil, and toss Christianity in the rubbish heap of world history. To remain silent while those appearing as angels of light assault the faith is no virtue. The shepherd that flees when the danger comes is called a hireling by our Lord and receives strict condemnation. To stand by under the banner of patience and unity while the truth is ravaged and people are deceived is the most spineless of acts. Your principle may be well-meaning, but he is also very misguided. That's my two bits. Thanks for permission to sharing your story. Keep standing strong, Jim. Questions? Some of the things out of the emergent, not the whole emerging church movement as a whole, but there are some things that they practice that would come out of Eastern, Eastern um, practice, like meditation. You know, they would say that we need to learn from the Buddhists how to meditate. As the scripture says nothing about how to meditate, right? Why do I need to learn from a Buddhist how to meditate? I don't. Scripture talks about meditating. I can learn from Scripture about how to meditate. I don't need a Buddhist to teach me that. But they will adopt these things from every culture, every group, every religion, every faith community. Why? Because there's this eclectic sort of relativistic, very subjective approach to things. So if we can learn from them, we should humble ourselves and learn from them. And it's, you know, look, I'm fine with humbling yourself and learning from somebody. I try and learn from, I read books all the time. I'm constantly trying to learn things from other people. I have no problem with that. But don't throw up a heretic and say, oh, I'm going to learn from him. Nothing to learn. I mean, let's go to the truth and learn the truth. But that's the problem, isn't it? Can truth be known? You and I say yes. They say no. Not absolutely. They can take a shot at it. We can't know it absolutely. This, I think, is a very real danger. Very real danger. It's going to... My prediction is it's going to come onto the church screen, uh, scene. It's going to take everything by storm. It's going to receive a lot of press. It's going to have a lot of people following it. And you're going to have the same fallout from this that you've had from other movements that have come and crept into the Christian church and gone on. In 20 years, we won't even be talking about the emerging church. We'll be talking about something else. But what we'll be talking about will be Scripture and people who are denying the faith. That's the one thing we've been talking about for 2,000 years. Thomas? That's right. If they can weaken the stand of the Bible itself, we don't have anything to stand on. No, not in their minds. You can't argue with them about truth. This is the postmodern melee, melee, whatever, however you pronounce that. It's the postmodern mix that we find ourselves in. Now, how can you argue with a relativist and say something is morally wrong? Well, they deny every source of truth that you have. It, it boils down to an attack on Scripture. It's an attack on the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. We hold to the perspicuity of Scripture. And by that, we mean clarity. The word means clear. On issues relating to God and salvation and Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear. And so in the 60s and 70s, you had an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture with the the hearing the voice of God and new revelations and new prophecies. And we have to have a word for today. And the Bible is only a source of authority. We fought that battle. We fought the battle of inerrancy in the 70s over the discussion of whether Scripture is absolutely true and whether we can trust it to be inerrant. We have gone through the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and now we're attacking the clarity of Scripture. And the authority of Scripture was attacked in the 90s. It's always the Word of God that is under attack. And these are just a new cast of players who are giving a new attack cast with different verbiage. But we're we're always fighting that battle for the Scripture. That's exactly it. And that's why I could have started in Acts chapter 20. From amongst your own selves men will rise, speaking perverse things. 
These are not people outside the church. This is Christianity astray. This is leadership journal. This is all of the this is all of the people within what we call evangelicalism. These are we've already wrapped our arms around the people in these flocks. And then you have them just they put out a little book on uh, meditative prayer and they put out a little something on another tape and then a website and a little a new approach to church. Hey, let's try candles and it's a very slippery slope, but what we have is people within from amongst our own numbers who are rising up speaking perverse things. Paul said it would happen. It has been happening for 2,000 years. There's always within the church people outside attacking and people inside who eventually will look up and wait for the leadership to kind of look down, and then they take off the sheep's clothing. And it's up to the shepherds and it's up to us as discerning Christians to be able to identify when we see the sheep clothing starting to come off. And that's what, we're, that's what I think we're seeing with the emergent church movement. That's not to say that I think everybody within the emergent church movement or even all the people that I've quoted are necessarily unbelievers. I, I can't say that. I can't judge their salvation. And that, I'm not going that far. I am saying what they're teaching is very dangerous and the end of it cannot in any way be good at all. Right. We have a lot of fundamentalists in the, that we respect, people that we respect. And I think it's going to get worse. Um. Go ahead, Mel. Yep, very good point. Yep. That's, that's why I started by saying we've got an emerging church. And by that I mean it not in the sense of an emergent movement, but we have a church within our church coming up. The next generation is always coming up and coming out of the church. And we need to, we need to know what's on the horizon. And we need to, to buffer our kids against that so they understand what this is. They're not swept in by it. They know what truth is. Um, any questions, Doug? That's the, that's the way that culture is going. Um, there will be something... I mean, look, pre-modernism was from the ancient to the 17th century. 17th century, a couple decades ago, a few decades ago, you had uh, modernism. And now you have post-modernism. And the, and the, the rumblings on the surface is that post-modernism is being questioned and dropped by a lot of the intelligentsia around the world, in Europe particularly. Um, there's something else that's going to be on the horizon after post-modernism. I don't know what they're going to call it. It's going to be a whole different view of truth and how truth can be known. Um, there's just you know, this, it, this change of philosophies, the change of, of, of ideas happens now at a pace that is unbelievable. You know why? Because I can sit down on my computer and I can find out what the guy around the other side of the world is thinking in an instant. So the exchange of ideas is so fast and so rapid and so comprehensive in today's world that a philosophy can start on the other side of the world and be in my living room within hours. Literally. And so there's this massive exchange of ideas and information. And it, it, it serves to... It's a double-edged sword. It can be a good thing, but it's also brings error into your life in a hurry. Dave, what pantheism is? Pantheism is the view that uh, God is in everything. It's uh, pan meaning all, theism, all is God. Uh, just, he's right here. He's within the wood. He's within the cushions. He's within us. That's pantheism. Um, you're going to see, this is why, let me close with this and then we'll, we'll pray because we've already gone over this is why the emerging church movement is so difficult to define and to describe and to pin down and because it's, it's so wide open as far as what you believe that you can be a New Ager, you can be a Buddhist Christian, a Muslim Christian, you can be a fundamentalist Christian, you can be a, 
a Calvinist Orthodox, whatever that thing is I read, you know, that big long list. You can believe any one of those things and belong to the movement. I mean, you can, you can self-style yourself as a Calvinist, self-style yourself as an Arminian. Liberal, conservative, charismatic, non-charismatic, cessationist, non-cessationist. It doesn't matter. You can put any label you want on yourself and you belong to the movement. You can belong to the movement. Why? Because, the, because of the view of absolute truth, the doors are thrown open and everybody's welcome, including the Buddhist, including the New Ager, including the Muslim, and whatever they want to bring to their table because it's all our own individual narrative. So we're all welcome to the table to converse about it. So when you have that going on, then anybody's, you can't, you see how hard it is to draw the lines? You can draw the lines and say, well, this is it. You can just kind of paint it with broad strokes. And as new as it is, I've been around for a few years, I guess maybe 10 that this has kind of been sort of rumbling and gaining steam. Um, as new as it is, you're going to see in the next 10 years, I think, an incredible morphing where they will go from orthodoxy to questioning orthodoxy to right over heresy, over the cliff into the sea of heresy in a hurry because it is so accelerated because they don't view truth. They, they cannot help but self-destruct. Postmodernism is self-destructing philosophy. Why? Because postmodernism says you can't know anything absolutely. So then you just ask them, are you absolutely sure, certain of that? And then nothing is true. Really, is that a true statement? All right, that's, you see how it self-destructs? It falls apart. You just have to ask the question. Anytime you see them both modern, they say, we can't know anything absolutely certainly. Really, you're certain of that. You seem awfully certain that you know that we can't know anything certainly. And so it's, it's a self-destructing movement, and any church philosophy and ministry that's built on postmodernism will self-destruct. It is, inevitably has to, because it doesn't hold to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this morning, and I know I've covered a tremendous amount of t- material and a tremendous amount of things, and I do hope and pray that my words have been gracious and fair and balanced, and that, above all, that we would be committed to your truth and love those who are in error and seek to, in the spirit of Second Timothy chapter 2, confront those who are in error in hopes that you might grant them repentance that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. Because we believe that there are men within even evangelical circles who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we ask, God, that you would deliver us from error, purge our minds of that, and help us to focus on the truth, to know the truth. And, Lord, that we might love the truth and your word and all that it reveals. We ask your blessing on our service, which is to follow, that you would be glorified through the proclamation of your truth. For Jesus' sake and in his good name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.